This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, pod fans. Max here. Um, just a heads up before we start our chat with Troy. We cover a few very sensitive issues, obviously on the subject of racism, um, uh, of which Troy is a... Uh, endlessly brilliant campaigner and we talk about suicide as well so please take care when listening we've got links to helplines and where you can go if you need support in the show notes for today's episode here it is hello and welcome to the guardian football weekly over the summer we're going to do a few more life and times podcasts just like the ones we did during the pandemic when frankly we were desperate we loved them you did too so time to get to know a few more of the panelists today to be totally honest we speak to anti-racism campaigner troy townsend who was not a bad footballer by the way uh, on the books of millwall play with a few great players we'll talk about a life of extraordinary highs and of loss and of his more than decade-long fight to kick it out this is the guardian football weekly On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. And of course, uh, Troy Townsend is here, a useful booking, considering <laughs> the subject matter of today's pod. How are you, Troy? Are you ready to be grilled? Not sure. I, I'm, I'm half excited and half worried because of the two of you. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. All right, let's have some stats, please, then. Uh, date and place of birth, full name on your passport. Oh, you haven't got that information. So you're asking me. All right. Okay. Yeah. First we of don't August. research the, we don't research these things. <laughs> <laughs> First of August, uh, have I got to tell you the date? Yeah, yes, nineteen sixty-five. Wow, um, work that out really quickly if you want to. Born in Hackney, uh, mother's hospital that is no longer there, um, unfortunately. But it's a story, a theme of my life from my younger years. All the buildings that I frequented have been knocked down somewhere along the line. Um, what was the other one? So, first full name of, on the passport. Full name on the passport. Troy. Donahue Townsend. Oh, where does Donahue? Donahue apparently was a, or so my dad tells me, I'm still not sure if I believe him though, but he tells me he was a famous actor back in the 19 blah blahs. So Troy Donahue. And I denied the name because I thought, what a weird name that is. So anytime I was at school and they used to say, you know, you know, what's your middle name? I used to call myself Anthony. Uh, so Troy Anthony, because it had such a better flow, and I like the name. But listen, the age I'm at now, you, you can you can know it. You can take the mick out of it if you really want to, and uh, share it to the world. That's a strong name. I think Donahue is an Irish surname. There's lots of Donahues. Is in it Ireland. really? Are you trying to claim Troy to, 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 <laughs> yeah. to take Declan Rice's spot? <laughs> I knew I had an affiliation somewhere along the line. Um, so look, tell us what growing up was like then in Hackney in the sixties. Uh, to be honest. As I'm always going to be, Max. That's what we want. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of my childhood. Um, we were, as a family with an older brother, um, we were in Hackney for about three years, four years. Um, and then we moved very quickly to Walthamstow um, in East London. Remember the name of the road, lovely road called Downsfield Road. But my childhood, and it may become clearer later, was very blurry. Uh, I loved football. I don't know where my love of football came from because my dad wasn't really a, a football type of man. Um, left home really early, so mum was obviously the key figure in the house. Um, but I don't have many great recollections of my well, many recollections of my childhood, and, and I'm not sure why. Um, it wasn't traumatic or anything like that. It was just I don't know. It's just a period of time where. I didn't, I just don't remember it. And it's not a brain loss or anything like that. It's just, I don't know if anything powerful came out of my childhood. Um, my brother's four or five years older than me. Um, he loved football same way that I did. Um, I don't ever remember 
going out. We, we had a park not too far away from us, to be totally honest, a great park. Um, I don't ever remember. I remember once going down the park when Dad came round one day and we, we played sport. But financially, it wasn't great in our household. Um, so you'd, just, you'd, you'd go to school and you'd come back. You know, it wasn't anything other than that. I wasn't allowed out, so I couldn't play out that much. It wasn't until I got into... Um, junior high that really I became a little bit of a rogue to be totally honest and if I wanted to go out I'd just go out um but football was a common theme during my primary school uh, I became the school captain I opened the brand new school that we moved to so we, we used to go to a school called Mark House which is knocked down um and the new school South Grove I was the one selected to open the school I do remember that I wore my best shirt on that occasion because the mayor was also coming down my best shirt was this Superman shirt with these flying wing collars and everything. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there was a pit. There is a picture of it somewhere, but I probably lost it. Um, so, I, you know, cutting the ribbon for the, for the, for the opening of the school um, and then winning my first medal at football as we took the, the South Grove primary uh, to a league title. Um, but I, I, I knew my influence early doors because... When we went to the new school, the PE teacher said, look, we're going to get you a brand new kit. For some reason, Brazil was my favourite uh, team and I got them to buy a yellow kit with sky blue shorts and white socks. Um, so that's my claim to my early influence in my early years. Were you significantly better than everyone else? Oh, absolutely, Barry. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, look, uh, we had some... In the younger age group, and it will become apparent more as I talk about my my um, growing up, it just seemed that my ability, and one or two others, I'm not going to say I was the, the 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 best, although being named captain at such a young age, there must have been a massive influence there and influence in the colour of the kit. Um, but yeah, I, I believe, listen, I can remember a couple of other talents. Andrew Grant was a, a little left winger. He was an absolute amazing player. Graham Hurst was the guy that at the time was was scoring all the goals. You know, these were my school friends. Um, we played in the school, same school team. Mark Rogers, another one. You know, I, I remember those names because they were so significant in the early years of my life. And I felt that those lads um, were, I don't know this name better than me, there's no way, but they were, they were uh, up there, that's for sure. And I enjoyed playing the game with them and always made sure that, you know, I tried to make sure that they were on my team. Um, when we were playing in the school program, but it was a privilege to play with them growing up. I'm not sure I recognised that at the time, but uh, but the fact that I can roll their names off just like that for me, yeah, they were a significant influence in in playing football. So how so how young were you when you were like when you thought I'm going to be a footballer? I mean, we all thought we were going to be a footballer when we were seven, but like, <laughs> I I wasn't going to be one. But you were going to be one. Uh, Max, as early as possible. Again, I I don't know what age, but as early as possible because I attached myself to that round thing. There was never away from me. It was never... I always thought... And listen, TV back then, for us, I couldn't really watch the TV. You know, I couldn't watch the TV past a certain time. Watching football or trying to watch football through the crack in a door in the front room whilst my mum's at the back washing up, not thinking that I've gone to bed, was my earliest experience. But I was galvanised by the game, the beauty of the game, the nature of the game, the the kind of... What it, what it meant, to, what it felt like just to play football, what it felt like to score goals, what it felt like to make a great pass. It just... It got me. It got me. So I, I, I don't know how early I started to believe it, but... Honestly, when I got to my double figure ages, I kind of said it was the only thing that I ever wanted to do. It was the only thing that I ever wanted to do was play football. Nothing. I had no visions of anything else. And, and who did you support? Like, Who were your heroes? Support was Tottenham. Don't ask me why. Um, again, there's no kind of design as to, to why it was Tottenham Hotspur at the time. You know, many people say oh, it's because my, my dad, you know, or, or, you know, a close family friend. I haven't got a clue. Um, I haven't got a clue. Brazil, um, and Brazil influenced me because of the 1970 World Cup, um, because of, I don't know, just one day the, t the black and white TV being on, and I must have been watching highlights because that World Cup was in Mexico. 
and then getting told to go to bed while the football was on. But I can't because this guy called Pele is on the screen and he looks like someone that I want to kind of, you know, share the kind of image of what he does. I became influenced by his number. I became influenced by the rest of his teammates. And then it's the final. And so the highlights are on. And mum says, you've got to go to bed. I can't go to bed. They're on the final. I need to work. But look, it was one of them again where bed was upstairs. Uh, I knew, because I could hear what was going on in the kitchen. I knew the plates were being clattered and what everything else. So just before I went up to bed, I made sure the football was on. So I turned it on and went up and obviously snuck back down, you know, quietly, door. And I'm watching the final. And then I hear those footsteps. So, you know, I had to scuttle straight back upstairs. I think I caught a significant part of it. And that significant part meant that Brazil were etched in my kind of memory and, and, and love of the, of the game as well. And that famous number 10, which is the number that I then started to wear for my school team as we had a Brazilian kit and a number that I have kept kind of in my memory um, and as part of my development and growing up because I wanted to be a Pele or a number 10 type player because after that, heroes were Glenn Hoddle, you know, and, and you know, the way and the style that he played. But there's no... There was no entry point where I thought where someone influenced my thinking as to to why why Tottenham, you know, and it's been a lot of pain, as you know, Max, during that period of time. And maybe I needed to be influenced in another way. But yeah, Tottenham, number 10s, Pele, Glenn Hoddle just became synonymous with who I wanted to be. And, and that's where it all stemmed from. When we were um, putting the Guardian Football Weekly book together. We were there's a bit where we're trying to get photos of people playing football, and you sent this team photo, and you said, "Look, there's a few decent players in there." Well, I think so. You played in the same side as as Teddy Sheringham, right? Yeah, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Were the first ten yards in his head then when he was fourteen? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I always remember him as a real top quality player. The biggest thing I remember about Teddy was not actually him playing on the field of play. It's the fact that his dad was at every single game. And I thought his dad was part of the coaching staff because he always stood not too very far away from them as well. And Teddy would half-time, full-time, you know, whatever it was, the break was spent with his dad. It wasn't spent with anybody else. And, and I never had that. I never had, you know, my parents have never, ever watched me play football. Um, and I'm not looking for any sympathy here. And I didn't think at the time that it mattered because your ability, you know, your quality, the way that you play and the coaching staff would take you on. But I never had that going to the touchline and speaking to dad and getting his opinion or mum and getting their opinion on how I was playing or even just the significance of well done, son, and stuff like that. And that's, that stayed with me for quite a significant period of time. Um, I used to play for a team called Anaconda and honestly, I used to have to go Sunday school every Sunday. You know, you used to dressed up into your nines, your favourite Superman shirt, and, and you go to church because that's what mum said you had to do. And because of my teammates who I've named, my school friends who I've named, they kind of said, we're playing for this team's Anaconda. You know, you need to come and play, come and play. I did not know how to broach that with mum. I, I, I honestly... I'd, how, oh. And then one, one Sunday morning, rather than putting on my Superman shirt, I put on a tracksuit. And she came up and she said, why are you not ready? And I said, I am ready. She said, but you've not got your... And honestly, I can't repeat the words that were said to me, but I stood strong. <laughs> I stood strong. And I went football. And Mac, the manager, came to pick me up. And that was it. I was attached. But the team that I left Anaconda for a team called Beaumont, and that's that picture that I shared with you um, with... You know, they, they weren't the big stars as, as they are now. Teddy Sheeran and Martin Hayes, former Arsenal, Jimmy Carter, former Arsenal, Perry Sucklin, uh, Michael Jilks, who wasn't in that picture. But Beaumont were, was the team of Wolf and Forest. They were the team that everyone feared. And I, and I went and joined them. And yeah, all of a sudden, I'm not only lining up with Teddy Sheeran at, at Beaumont Football Club, but he was already at Millwall. And uh, the manager, uh, Brian Shirt and scout Morris Newman, they from Beaumont, they had this attachment with Mill and Crystal Palace. 
Um, so it meant that I, that was my first entry into to going into, and Millwall, I think it was at 13, 14. That's when I really believed that I was going to become a professional footballer, when I first pulled on a kit. And you were at Millwall for, for, for how long? And, and why, why didn't it work? Listen, it's not like the academy system now. I think I was at Millwall for, for just nearly a year. Um, but Mac, who was obviously my former Sunday league manager, if he couldn't take me to training, uh, which is in obviously South East London and I'm in East London, then I, I couldn't go. Um, it wasn't one of those where you, I didn't know how to bunk trains at that time. I didn't know how to bunk a bus. This is what my team, some of my teammates from East London were doing. And if Mac couldn't get me there, then I couldn't go. And there was always this, oh, Troy can't make it today. Which, you know, if you do that in today's terms, then that's it. If you can't get to your, your whatever way or they put cars on for you and stuff like that. And when it came to like the year later and the, the summary of my attendance and performance, it wasn't great. So they kind of, look, we can't continue like this. And like I said, my mum wouldn't take me football. My dad wouldn't take me football. My brother wouldn't take me football. So it's, we can't continue like this. Good talent, but, and, and that was, it just had a natural, natural end. It, I, it wasn't even said to me, by the way. It was said to um, Morris Newman, who was the, the Beaumont, uh, like I say, scout or, or whatever you want to call him at that stage. Um, and, and that was it. It was just a natural end. Um, although I went to Crystal Palace for, because they had that connection with Crystal Palace, I went to Crystal Palace for six months, about six months. And John Cartwright, who was the England under 21 coach as well, and one of the most influential figures in my career, because I'd never had a coach like John. He taught me things about being on the ball, movement off the ball, you know, that I'd never, and that's no disrespect to anyone else that I had, but I'd never learnt before. But John wasn't a decision maker. John wasn't the one that said, you know, make sure this lad signs for Palace and, and whatever else. And again, a natural end. Um, no performances for, the, for, for Palace as, a, as a, an academy player. And, and that was it. It was fiddled out. What, what age were you at this stage, Troy? So I was 15. 15 going I'm an, I'm an August birthday as you know now so uh, you know I'm I'm the baby as such but in the end Barry I wasn't even attending school you know on a regular basis I was just turning up when I wanted to turn up but I even stayed on at school so and the only reason I stayed on at school I've got to be honest I, like I said I was good with figures and I stayed on to do accounts and commerce but the most important thing was that in the in the playroom, there was a bar football table. And that's where I could be found most of the time. To the point where, where the, the school just said, well, why are you still here? Why, why are you? I said, because of the, have you seen that bar football table in there? Like, and so, yeah, it was, it, it's just an absolute mess. The end of my kind of schooling period, the being released period, it was honestly, it was an absolute mess. And while I'm I'm not speaking from any kind of personal experience here, Troy, but I I did notice as a kid there are certain perks that come with uh, being the star athlete. Uh, did did you get to enjoy any of those at all? What kind of perks are they, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> Female attention. Um, yes, absolutely. Listen, when when you are exactly when you are the the listen, football was my thing, but I loved athletics. I loved cricket. I was a decent athlete. I was a good cricketer, you know. So when you hold all those kind of multiple um, kind of different experiences and, and being able to, to be paraded as such, you know, at the front of the assembly, you know, when everyone's sitting down in assembly and Troy Townsend and, you know, you go up and you, uh, you, you do, you attract a lot of attention. And, and I was a little bit susceptible to that attention. I, I, ain't going, <laughs> <laughs> I can't lie. I can't lie. Seems a good place to end part one. <laughs> Barry living vicariously through, through, <laughs> through Troy Townsend 40 years ago. Anyway, uh, we'll be back in just a second. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly, the life and times of Troy Townsend. Part two is going to be slightly different. It's a very sensitive subject. We've obviously talked about it with you before, Troy, before recording this, and we're not springing anything on you. And obviously, if you don't want to talk about it at any point, that's fine. Right? I don't, I don't care. It's totally your choice. Your Twitter bio reads, "My heart will remain well and truly broken." Right? And for ages, I didn't know what that was about, and I didn't feel it was my business to ask. Um, but it relates to your son, Curtis, who died in a car accident on the 15th of December, 2001, on the way to a Chestnut FC away game. You were the manager of, of Chestnut at the time. Um, tell us about Curtis. Oh, wow. What, uh, I'm going to say it anyway, aren't I? What a beautiful young man. Followed many of my traits. You know, been in the game. Listen, it's my firstborn. He was just a beautiful child. He was released by Wimbledon at 16. Um, so he had a, a career very similar. He was at Leighton Orient. He went to Wimbledon. He's part of their big, massive FA Youth Youth Cup run and the likes of Joby McEnough and Mikel Ledgerwood. You know, those players were part of his team. And um, I had a business at the time, so I ran uh, a sports development company, my own company with my business partner, Steve Brown, um, called Ultimate Sports. And, you know, I saw him and I said, don't worry, don't worry. I, I was also, like you said, the manager of Chesham Football Club. So I said, don't worry, look, we'll, we'll get you back. You know, we'll get you back to where you need to be. I think he was suffering from a bit of confidence, not understanding why he was released. And I basically took him under my wing as such, and as any parent would, and... Brought him into the business as a sessional coach and and he became a new signing for me as Chesnut's right back. Kurt was just, you know, the, the stories I heard afterwards from all sorts of people, all sorts of people about Kurt's influence on them, you know, about how this mature young man was just a diamond, a star, a, a, you know, one of those, you know, that old sand that we used to have, I'm not even sure if you can say it now, but he'd cross the road and help a, an, a, an old woman, you know, with her shopping and stuff like that. And he was very mature, very, very mature. I, I, and I don't disrespect a certain age group at that age, but like he was doing things, talking about things, talking about future, which obviously I didn't at that time in a, in a very mature way and, and you know, we became bonded again and, you know, he became big part of my new family and, and part of our, our new life for him, you know. So a handsome young man, just very proud of, of the way that he developed and, and what he was creating for his own life. And obviously I wanted to play now a very significant part of that. And I wanted to just bring him into my arms, you know, being released as, is a massive thing, as we've said. And I didn't want him to go... I remember my business partner, Steve Brown, like I said, who, who was manager of Slowtown Football Club. It was a massive football club, much bigger than Chesnut FC, by the way. Um, and he said to me, like, I think it was about a month after I signed Kurt, let me have him. I went, no. And he went, go on, we're a bigger club. Where are the... I said, I know you are, but my instincts was that I wasn't ready to let Kurt go. You know, and I wasn't ready to to say, look, you've only had a month with me, but look, you can earn another 50 quid with Steve and you can play in, definitely in front of more than, than two people and a, and a, and a hot dog. Um, but I wasn't ready to let him go. So Steve said it chuck tongue in cheek, but I know he meant it. I know he meant it. And I was just like, no, you can't, you can't have him yet. He's, I'm not, no. I bet yet we're business partners. We see each other every day. I know Kurt would have been in safe hands because of the way that Steve managed and what love he had for him. Um, but I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to let go. So um, he, sta he, he stayed with me. And, you know, a couple of months into... So he would have signed in August. Um, and by December, that there was that fatal accident. That day is obviously etched on your mind. And I don't mind if you don't want to talk about it, but I, can you talk about it or, or is it too difficult? It's, it's, it's obviously difficult. Um, it may mean that this pod breaks up a little bit, but I, I remember the day like it was yesterday. It's, it, it's 22 years ago in December. 
But I can't remember things from nine months ago, but that day is obviously the, the unforgettable, you know? There's two things about the day that stick out more than most. And, and we normally, so we have a, a teammate that picked us up and I'm not going to mention his name because it was, you know, he was driving the car at the time. But we used to go into a cafe every match day and, and have, you know, every every away game, sorry, not the home games, because we eat at the club and, yeah, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? And we'd go out and go and get the, the food. And this time, Kurt didn't want to come out. And I couldn't understand it. I just, we always got out. I, I didn't make a big thing of it, of course, but he was sitting behind me, he was in the back seat. And he just said, no, I don't want nothing to eat. And I was like, why do you want nothing to eat? And I honestly remember like standing at the front of the the shop that we were in looking into the car or just looking in that direction and I don't know if I'm going mad but I didn't see Kurt I saw a silhouette I didn't think obviously you don't think anything of it I, I as far as I'm concerned out of my eyes I didn't see Kurt I saw a silhouette and Listen, we got the sandwiches, we got a lot. The game was supposed to be postponed. It was touch and go. It was the middle of winter. It was snowing. We'd cancelled the coach that we were due to to have. And we're all sitting there in the car park uh, in cars. Now I'm with the chairman. Curtin would normally, this is the second thing, would normally come into the chairman's car with me. But he, he stayed in the, the, the original car that picked us up and... All of a sudden, we get a message. The ref has said the game's on and we've got to get from Chesant to Luton, Barton Rovers, and we're now in a trail of cars, six, seven cars, which is never ideal, but, you know, anyone that's experienced uh, non-league football at that level will know. And so we set off and we're on this journey and the roads are a little bit, obviously, difficult. And I remember getting to the ground and, again, no fault. You get to the ground, you wait for everyone to pile into the changing room. There's four people in the car that Kurt was in and, and they're not there. And I've made a phone call at 2.06, 2.07 to Kurt. Um, it's gone straight to voicemail, which was strange. And Where are you? Where, where, where are you? And I was quite angry, um, not thinking anything else, but where are you? Like, I should have put the team sheet in seven minutes ago. I've had to put the team sheet with three of the four players that are in their car in the starting 11. And then I, I don't get a message back, but a team sheet's gone in. This is where everything then becomes blurry because I cannot remember. I know we lost 2-0. I cannot remember the game. And some people say to me, well, why did you? And because the thing was, we still thought they'd be on. No one is thinking the worst. We... I got out, I, I remember the end of the game was a bit feisty. We'd lost 2-0, there's a little bit of things going on at the end of the game. I've got involved. And then someone has tapped me, one of the players who was injured tapped me and said, oh, you've got to go straight to the hospital. I said, what do you mean I've got to go to the hospital? I went, oh, something's wrong, you've got to go to the hospital. Um, so I left there, got a lift from that player. We've gone straight to the hospital. Honestly, again, I'm not thinking anything bad at all. I'm just thinking, I don't even know what I was thinking on that journey. But the minute you get to the hospital and there's a police officer waiting to meet you, and the first thing I said to him, what's wrong? Where's Kurt? What's up? And he said, I can't tell you. So I thought, hold on, you've brought me all the way here and you can't tell me. And it wasn't until they, they, they got me into the room and, and said, there's been, a, there's been a fatal car crash and, and Kurt's passed. Um, I remember, oh. So I might take your time, mate. I remember, I remember immediately breaking down. I remember falling to the floor and, and, and just, I don't know, I don't know. But the worst thing I had to do, the worst thing I had to do was ring his mum up and tell her that the son that she's left in my care and, you know, 
taken to football as we always do is not coming home tonight. It's it's the is it. I don't think I'll ever have anything as bad as that to 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 tell anybody again. And then rest of it is an absolute blur. I know my phone is. I don't know how people get to know bad news so quick, but my phone is going off and off and off and I can't answer it and again Steve my business partner I don't know where Slough were playing that day but for some reason he seemed to be at the hospital almost 10, 50 it seemed like that time didn't matter anymore and he was just amazing in the way that he shielded everything from me but all of a sudden all these people are, the, the news travelled like there was no tomorrow Kurt was the only one that was taken. Um, it was a couple of horrendous injuries for a couple of the players who couldn't play again, by the way. Um, and, yeah, that was... It was just... Obviously, a day that I'd never forget, a day that I want to forget. Um, I remember going out that night, so we'd come back from the hospital, I'm having to tell the kids... Um, which, again, was emotionally... I don't think they knew what was going on, you know, but I had to tell the kids. And then um, I remember me and Steve went out about 3am that night and just drove around the streets um, just to clear my head. And we ended up at McDonald's in Leytonstone. I don't even think we went in and we just fell asleep in the car till about five. So I've now got my missus ringing me thinking something's going on. Just fell asleep in the car to about 5am as the enormity of what happened. You know, it was hit me anyway, but the enormity of what happened just kind of like, yeah, and I, we just dropped asleep. And then that was the beginning of, well, it was the worst day of my life. It was the beginning of a very, very difficult and, and period that uh, I've got to be honest with you guys. I don't know how I'm here today. I, I, I honestly don't know how I'm here today. Suicidal thoughts. Um... I was at a train station and I made my last call, what I thought was my last call. Uh, uh, I've always looked at, I haven't got any lampshades up here, but I've always looked at lampshade and thought, is that the best way to do it? Um, I just couldn't function. I couldn't I couldn't be who I was, you know. A piece of me had been ripped out, out of the whole of our family and I just didn't know how to recover. Sorry, guys. Grief is such an individual thing, and and I suppose the question is sort of ha have you coped? How how and it and it changes over time, right? It never it's it's not the same, but it doesn't go away. But how do you think you have managed to, you know, be to 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 to, to sort of survive that? I honestly can't tell you. I don't know how to tell you. S Steve was. You're hearing me keep mentioning Steve because Steve, you know, is my business partner, my best friend. Uh, you know, we'd spend every day together once we formed mm. a relationship as, as business partners. He was an ex-player as well. I couldn't stand him as a player, by the way. He was so flashy. He was so, he had everything, you know, <laughs> dripped with confidence and hated him, hated him. And then our two partners said, why don't you two get together and form a business? And I remember, I have to say this, because I need to lighten myself a little bit, but I remember sitting across a table we were almost being interviewed by this person that I hated um, with a passion because of his ability to play football. And we're going into this relationship that, you know, became more than just business partners. And he he did everything. He did everything for me. He, you know, he, uh, anything that needed to be fielded was fielded by Steve and... He's no longer with us as well, and that's another story. But when you say, how did you survive those two weeks towards the funeral? I now realise that the build-up to the funeral, any funeral, is the horriblest thing that anyone can do after the experience of, of losing someone. But what happens after the funeral, in many, many cases, is that everyone, as you would expect, goes on with their daily lives, you know? And I wasn't allowed to just go on with my daily life in a sense. And I was grateful for that because there were times when I went missing. 
So Troy's, where is he? Where's he gone? And he'd look for me and he'd hunt down every single place that he thinks that I could be. He tried to drive me back to work, although at one stage he did it and it was the worst thing that I ever did, standing in front of 150 young children um, at school that Kurt worked at to explain or take all the plaudits about my son. I wasn't ready for that. It was 10 days later, I wasn't ready for that. But I went and he, he made me go. And I'm not saying it wasn't a good thing, but I had someone there to drive me all the time, you know, make, get out, keep doing things, don't. And he did it with so much love and purpose um, that I think that's one of the reasons why I survived. And the other thing is, is you become, I don't know, I don't know if this is wrong. And when people listen, they might say, I, I don't, you become mentally strong to everything around you. You develop a, I don't think I'm mentally strong. I've never say that I'm mentally strong. As you can tell, it took me seconds to break down, but you become mentally strong against everything, you know, everything. But I didn't want to see people. You know, I felt that people were talking about me. Isn't he the one that lost his son? And I had a friend, again, a friend, uh, you know, we bumped into each other. And one of his things was life goes on, doesn't it? And it was, I've hated that phrase ever since then. Because the worst thing that he could have said to me when I think was so raw. So, Max, I don't know how I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here because I've got good people around me. I'm sitting here because... I say I don't know how and then I'm explaining how. I'm sitting here because I've become mentally strong, which I've needed throughout the course of my life. And I'm sitting here because I don't want to foul Kurt and I don't want to foul Steve, who's obviously, like I said, now not with us. I don't want to foul them you know I know I said early doors that you know I wanted to uh, I wanted to take my own life and everything because of all the regrets but I don't want to fail them um I need to continue to 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 drive legacies of those two amazing people and obviously I don't want to bring heartache to my own family so that might be the reasons why do you do you get that it's that talking about it can be a great comfort to others, you know, I'm really conscious. I don't just want to get somebody on a podcast to make them cry to go. Oh well, that's a good bit of a podcast. Someone's cried, but actually, people talking about these things is can be incredibly helpful to other people going through similar things. I never did, so I couldn't talk to anyone. Um, I didn't go. Everyone was saying, "Troy, you need to go to a counselor." It's so extreme. No, I'm not going to a counselor. I don't want to speak to anyone. I don't want to speak to anyone that doesn't know who I am, that doesn't know the situation, that doesn't want to. Uh, appreciate what I may go for, may be going through. I've never, ever wanted to do that. And then, I don't know, five, six years ago, was it five? I can't remember when that, but I opened up on, a, on a, another podcast for the first time, exactly the same as this. And the response to that showed me that actually there's people so much in a similar situation than me who resonate, who took a key bit of advice, who, you know, were appreciative of me sharing what had happened, that it became easier, and I use easier with just, I, I, you know, just a little bit. I started to write some, I'm not a great writer, you, you know how my, my schooling went, but I started to write some thoughts down, you know, of difficult periods, of Father's Day, of... Curtis's birthday of all these types of things and and kind of reflected my thoughts at those times Christmas the day that he passed you know the day that he passed 10 days before Christmas I've never enjoyed Christmas again never enjoyed Christmas again but I felt that people if if anybody somebody could take heart from what I was saying then you know, it's got to be a good thing, you know? And it it, it seemed that the, the, the reaction I was getting, the response, I read every note, that every last word, and I may not acknowledge it because that then becomes difficult, but I read every last word that people send to me. So I get DMs, I get responses in comments, you know, I'm putting these out publicly and I, I feel very grateful for all the people I've connected with some, uh, there was another thing, sorry. 
there was a guy who DM'd me on Twitter, and I don't normally read my DMs in Twitter, and said, I've seen your pinned tweet. And he said, was that game at Barton Rovers? And he said, because if it was, I think I was playing. And I remember that there was something going on about one of the players. I didn't know it was your son. Honest, I, I kept that DM for about four weeks. I couldn't respond to it because it took me right back there. But actually I did because I had to thank this guy, whoever he was, who was only 18 at the time, same age as Kurt. You know, then now, or when he sent it, he was 33. And he said he changed my whole perspective on life and has made me a better parent. He's now a father of two kids. But he just felt that he had to reach out to me. And, and, and it's those things that show me that actually, Troy, maybe you do need to speak about it more when you're strong enough to speak about it more. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 look, it's, it's, it's things like that that I'm not saying make me better about myself because, but it means that I'm sharing. And like you said at the outset there, Max, you know, even if one person, and apparently it has, so, um, you know, maybe I'll keep doing it. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Troy, I read a, an interview you did uh, talking about Kurt once before and I got the impression you were sort of still beating yourself up over a lot of things that really weren't your fault, you know, that not letting him go to play with your mate Steve's team, you know, saying, oh, it wouldn't have happened if I'd, I'd let him go or the fact that your your last words were sort of words of irritation into a message minder, you know, telling him to hurry up, where are you? And do you still feel that way? I mean, it, it just seemed to me to be quite daft isn't the word, but you, you're you're punishing yourself for for stuff that just isn't your fault. Yeah, Barry, that's what everybody says. And yes, I still feel that way. You know, I feel that if I didn't bring him into my circle, I feel that if I didn't sign him for Cheson, I feel that if I demanded that he came into the chairman's car that day, uh, there's so many things that I feel responsible for. And of course, like the message that you said there is what everyone says is, Troy, you can't, but put it this way, I can't stop beating myself up. My son's no longer here. I felt that I had a part to play in it. Once I knew he'd passed, I don't know if it was straight away, but I did make another phone call to that voice note to tell him I'm sorry for shouting. Um, sorry for, no, just sorry. And who am I talking to? I've talked to a voice note. I still have his number in my phone. I, still, I can't raise the memory. Beat myself up is because, I don't know, I was doing what any dad would do, but then I felt responsible for the last leg of, of his life. The thing is, Barry's totally right, but that's it's totally understandable that I presume anyone who has been through anything like this will question every single tiny moment that leads up to it. But as Barry said, it is, you know, life is... Sometimes bad shit yeah, just happens. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, look, I, I, I appreciate you so much talking about that, Troy, because I think it will help a lot of people. And and we had a really interesting question from Michael that says, you know, does the loss of Kurt fuel your righteous indignation, desire to make the world a better place? I read somewhere that you, you think he'd be proud of, of what you do. Um, and and I think he would be. Yeah, listen, I, I, I know he would be because he was very much of the same mould, you know? He was very much... He was such a caring, giving person at such a young... Much more than what I ever was at that age, you know? I, I resented everything at that age because my football career was no more, you know? The thing that I thought was going to last a lifetime didn't. And he was... He obviously didn't take that element from me, but he was such a loving, caring person to every human being. But I wanted to stop coaching. I wanted to, you know, obviously I took a break from Cheson and that's another story in itself. I do think that my desire for change and my desire for making football a better place, which ultimately impacts in other areas and, and, and being keen 
to never let that voice go has been driven by a number of factors and definitely Kurt is 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 one of them because I just want to continue to make him proud. I want to continue for him. I believe he's here. I, I, you know, I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not someone who I don't, you know, after my Sunday school experience, church wasn't really the thing for me because Sunday school was stopping me from playing football. But I believe so much about how he's driven our future. And that's not just my future, by the way, that's the future of our kids. And I know how much he would be very proud of Andrus's career and, you know, would have been there every game that we were there and, uh, you know, all of that. And the blessings that I've continued to have. Listen, I've had some difficult times in life, as I've mentioned, but actually some of the blessings that have been bestowed on me have been because of Kurt. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely sure of that. And so I will continue to to drive for as long as I've got and to, to try and make things different because I know that he's sitting up there going, if you stop now, you know, you've wasted all this time. So, you know, I know that he's there and he's willing me on and and he's wants me to continue to, to, to make him proud. And so that's, that's what I try to do every day. And that's uh, what we'll talk about in just a second, back in a sec. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Rob says, having listened to Troy uh, being interviewed before, how he got in his foot in the door at Kick It Out is very inspiring. Be good to hear more around that and, and how he eventually became the gaffer. Is that just your competitive spirit? You were there and you just, you wanted to run this thing. Oh, look, I have to self tell people, um, I don't run Kick It Out. It, it... <laughs> So many people have said that you are kick it out. You are the, but you know there's a there's a great team that kick it out. I'm a, a small element of a small team, but I'm probably the most visual, and that's what makes people think that I'm whoever I may be. My, my title is the head of player engagement. I I work religiously um, to educate, to inspire, to support, to guide in this space and and obviously racism is a topic that you can either take it or leave it 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 almost seems that way in this day and age um but my experiences the experiences of so many players now um is the thing that drives me and keeps me going you know i talk to parents on a on such a regular basis i'm fueled by the passion that i said passion i don't like when people say passion but i'm fueled by the fact that Football needs to do better and has continually needed to do better. And if I can be the stick that that kind of keeps holding football to account, and, and I know football doesn't like it, that is beyond belief for me that football doesn't like someone that campaigns against racism and discrimination um, because I have to question some of the, the kind of legalities around it and, and what players should be doing and all of this kind of stuff. I, I, I can never get my head around that, by the way. I've got myself in trouble at times. People say I say the wrong things, but how can I say the wrong things when we're talking about trying to make the game a better place for everyone to experience? Not just those that walk on the field of play, those that are you know, employed in the background or you know, parents who have to visually watch their child being, being discriminated against. And how can I be saying the wrong things? You know, and in 2023, that we still have to have the discussion about the protection of these people, being responsible and, and making sure that people hear the strong and powerful messages or the stories of, of victimization that continue to exist. I don't know how much more I need to be talking about it for. And I, when I say the game, I mean the whole game. I mean FIFA, I mean UEFA, I mean all of those big entities that really have the power to make the change that I believe that the good majority of people want to see. Yeah, I, it's always struck me, you know, that we have had this conversation so many times, right? And on this pod, on the radio, everywhere. And the number of times where you've just sort of said, I'm tired. Because the point is some people, somebody was on the radio the other day saying, we don't need activism anymore. Football's fine, you know, and it was like a middle-aged white man saying, you know, we just want football to ha- escape for escapism. You know, and you're like... And you're sitting, I'm watching going, I can't fucking believe you're saying that from that position of privilege. Like, are you complete and like not totally unchallenged? Um, because football isn't for everyone. If 
why am I telling you this? You know it. You know, if black players get racially abused, whether they play well or they play badly, or if, you know, discrimination is happening to anybody. So I don't even know what my question is now, Troy. I just, I find it, I, I, I suppose it is, but, but and, and this is someone, and I am someone who has not experienced this. And I guess to effect change, does, does it mean that people at the top of the game, in every part of it, have to be, it has to have a broader selection of people, right? Uh, uh, people who are, will have experienced this. No, no, it has to be a, a broader selection of people. There has to be diverse leadership. But ultimately, and I was having a conversation with some real prominent people the other day. We were, we were all sharing our frustrations over, um, over a bite to eat. The only way it's going to change is when it affects, his finance, affects finances. It's the only way it's going to... We've seen it. We've seen the Super League, you know, the fallout of the Super League and the galvanisation of so many that that breakaway group were not going to break away. But that was all about finance. We can punish teams five points, whatever it may be, for financial irregulations. We're happy to, to, to take those points away because financially they're not doing things correct. Why have we... Listen, the FA have just introduced a, a thing at grassroots where they're going to look at taking points away. It's great because what happens in grassroots, honestly, will fill up the whole pod. But why is it that we're, we're not even think, contemplating that at senior level? Why is it that Vinicius Junior has to have, you know, six experiences of the most extreme racism, seven experiences this season alone? And yet still we're talking. We're just talking. Why, why, does, why is it right that someone whose talent and ability enables them to share that talent and entertain the football world, you know, fans and whatever else? Why is it that but they can be subjected to the most horriblest elements, you know, effigies hanging off of bridges? Is that not enough to say... How do we protect this individual and how do we protect teams and how do we impact on club? The clubs, the fans are their clubs. You know, the clubs are responsible for their fans, no matter what they're doing in any way. Why can we not apply the strongest possible sanctions at that moment? Who's at the head of, head of all these organisations? What, what, you know, whenever they talk, it's just talk. It, it, it's nothing more. It's not action. It's not you know, driving the situation forward and, and being the leaders in this space, no matter what country it's, it's in. And it's not just a football problem. We're all aware of that. But everyone talks about how football can influence society, you know, in, in, you know, in all these different factors, in all these different areas. Players take their time to, to do so much, so much, but yet we can't influence on racism and discrimination. We can't be a beacon for how to do it right or how to challenge it or how to, to sanction it, which means that we're then open to these players being discriminated against. And obviously my big focus is around the racial abuse, although I do touch on other elements. We're, we're happy for them to continue to receive that abuse. And I just, I, I cannot wrap my head around it. And, and when you get these people like the person that you said, you know, it's only a bit of, it's only language, isn't it? It's only a bit of, ah, that effigy, what's, what's that? It's only a doll hanging from a bridge. It's got no significance. They've never walked. Uh, Max, I think I said to you one of our first meetings, one of our first conversations, walk in my shoes. Just walk in my shoes at any given moment. I, I, I'm going to tell you this story of what happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I left, I'd had a very good afternoon. Well, the game wasn't great, but watching Tottenham versus Crystal Palace. Had a great afternoon. Uh, was it I'm Conte or... Yeah, Keely, it doesn't matter. It would have been bad. I know that. <laughs> it was bad, full stop. It was bad. <laughs> it was the day that uh, Hung Ming Sung got racially abused by right, a Crystal right. Palace fan. And I've walked out of Spurs, a place that I go uh, quite a number of times and I've just said goodbye to Chris Powell. And I've crossed the road and I do not believe this person was a fan, by the way, so I don't want to put anything against... Spurs or Crystal Palace fans. And Tottenham High Road is chock a block. Yeah, as always is. I've as left an hour is. later, yeah. but yeah. So I've tried to cross the road to go and get myself an Uber in front of this van that is not moving. 
as I've turned round, this guy's face is going purple. And I can lip read because he's calling me a monkey, he's calling me a black this, and he, he's effing and he's blind and he's raging. And I think to myself, what's he raging at? The traffic's not moving. So his window's wound up. I've turned round and I've gone to his window. Are you okay? And he's, he's, he's almost like I'm not there. He is still raging. It's a work fan. He's got no colours on. That's why I don't think it was a fan at all. Um, but he's raging at me. You black, you effing monkey. You get out of the way. And you know, at that moment, a couple of things went through my head. I can either start pulling the handle of the door, which is never going to open and whatever else. I could punch the, the, the windscreen. What does that do? And I stood in amazement. And actually, I thought, just a, can you imagine this? Troy Townsend on Tottenham, uh, Tottenham High Road, you know, having an altercation and, and this. And I, oh, and then the lights went green and he managed to get through the lights and, and I crossed the road. And I was like, all I did was try and cross the road. That's all I did in front of a stationary van three weeks ago, or four, I don't know when the game was, four or five weeks ago. And that's when I realised that, you know what, no matter what we do, no matter how much we try and influence, no matter how many people say, I saw you talking on, yeah, thank you, like, keep the... There's always going to be those who, if you don't mind me saying, don't give a shit. Don't give a shit. Well, we'll keep, we'll keep on keeping on. That's the only... Feel like it's the that is the, like the least we can do. I want to talk a bit about Andros. Not that I ever bring him up yeah. when you're on the pod. <laughs> he basically got England what to was it the World Cup in 2014? Like he played one game, he qualified. You know, he scored a couple of goals or something. And I'm just sort of thinking, as the, as the dad of the guy <laughs> that does that at Wembley. Is it Wembley? What is that? Like? It was at Wembley. It was at Wembley. I, I Listen, you're taking me through all the emotions today. Um, I won't cry at this one, but it is such an emotional thing to everything that your child puts into trying to make it. And obviously the family, the family are an important part of that. I remember Andrew telling me, so it was a Friday night, it was Montenegro, um, and it's two, two qualifiers left. I remember him texting me, I'm starting about midday. And I was just walking into Watford Football Club. And I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant, amazing. And I'm like, damn, I just want to get to Wembley now. I just want to get to Wembley. I think I delivered the worst session that I've ever delivered because I didn't really <laughs> care. Um, got down to Wembley, got down to Wembley, I don't know, half past six, whatever it is. And I flew down Wembley Way. I literally flew down Wembley Way. I like to watch his warm-up. And all of a sudden, my son is at Wembley, the field of dreams, with an England kit on. And again, I feel that we are very blessed at that period of time for him to do that. And and I'm shitting myself throughout the whole game because I don't want him to make a mistake. I just, all I'm worried about, don't make mistakes, please don't make mistakes and get on the ball, do what you normally do. And he's doing it, but I've got a face of frustration. Like, I'm scared, I'm scared. He's had a great first half. I get told off at half time by my missus because apparently in my face I'm too tense and it's relaying on the pitch. And I'm like, how can it relay on the pitch? Like, do you know what I mean? There's 80 odd thousand fans and my face is, is, guess what he does just after half time? He makes this great run down the line, crosses Rooney's shot, sorry, Welbeck shot, Rooney finish. And she almost looked at me and said, yeah, I told you so, didn't I? And it's because I'd relaxed in the second half. I'd, I'd kind of, you know, lost all the tension in my face. When he scored, he scored the third goal that night. I may have, uh, and because you two know the way that I walk, I may have ran down the stairs a little bit, um, you know, cheering and whatever else. And it's almost like an out-of-body experience of of joy, of glee, of 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 love, of everything came down to that moment and he's running towards us. He doesn't even know where, where we are in the, in the ground. You know, it's the first time we've watched him at, at Wembley in, a, in an international and in an England international and he's, and he's done his knee slide, which nearly put him out of the, the final game. But I've never seen my son do a knee slide. No, no, he did one knee slide, but I'm thinking, wow, he must've enjoyed that, you know, and all that emotion is years and years and years 
of doing the things that you do to support your child. Um, I don't know what level that takes you to, but it takes me, it, 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 it's just the, the best feeling ever. And I'm probably not even doing it justice in a way that I'm describing it. And I actually thought that he played better in the second game, which was against Poland on the Tuesday night. We won 2-0. That was a game we had to win. Um, if we lost, Poland would have gone through and we would have had to gone into the uh, playoffs. I felt he played better on that night. Didn't score, didn't assist, but hit one, cracking one off the bar. But just immense pride watching him run around Wembley Stadium in an England kit, in that white shirt, like playing the way that I know he can play as well. You know, he, he didn't let anybody down. In a matter of fact, the raw when he came off both times was just unbelievable. The expectation and everything. And it was a really, really good period for him, obviously. Um, but then obviously the, the the other thing was the disappointment of getting injured well, being taken out by Greg Peters at Stoke City in the March, which then meant that he, he missed the World Cup finals. Here's a question I've always wanted to ask. Given all that you've done for him, do you ever just ask for 60 grand? <laughs> <laughs> Andros is very generous with the... Uh, listen, I'm so proud the way that he's grown up and the way that he's managed everything around him to be total. Listen, he's a, he's a, still a young man. He's had a few dips. He, he had a betting band, didn't he? I, was, I think he's public and, um, you know, but he's managed himself and his wealth amazingly and it makes me so proud that there are not these continued stories of of Townsend that he doesn't drink he's never smoked he doesn't like going out you know so actually all the things sounds that... like sounds like me <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a boring <laughs> but he look he he's very much a, a family orientated young man who you know because of the game has a wealth bigger than anything that I could have imagined any one of my family members would have had. And he's a generous soul. Um, I've never asked for 60 grand before, that's for sure, but he's always looked after us. It's too. a good idea, Troy, uh, isn't it? It might be idea. a good idea, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's a very, very generous soul. Um, and I'm very, very proud of him. Troy, you, you said earlier that your dad didn't go to watch you play uh, when you were trying to make it. Did you sort of deliberately go out of your way to make up for that with your boys by by going to all their games? Because I know, you know, watching Troy now, or sorry, watching Andros now involves... I was going to say, if you're watching me now, yeah. you're watching the wrong sport, that's for sure. <laughs> watching Andros now must it obviously involves having to go to a lot of Everton games, which can't be much fun. <laughs> um, are you tempted to say, look, you've made it, my work is done, I'm not going to Goodison Park again? Do you remember that he was, listen, he, obviously he's had an injury that's kept him out now for 13 months. So actually he was at Everton during the better times of the last two years. You know, they won, a, there's a period where they won a few games, he scored a few goals um, and he was performing, he was performing well. So it was absolute a pleasure going to Goodison Park, really. I remember one toxic game against Watford when they were 2-1 up with 12 minutes to go. And lost 5-2. I mean, try and explain that, by the way. Um, and it was the beginning of the end for Rafa. But no, Barry, we... we. I don't think it was a conscious decision. I get what you're saying about my dad, but we were just growing up at, with our children, wanting to support them in any way possible. It's not an easy life out there, you know? And yeah, we. I was still coaching, so it's my missus that was actually doing most of the, the, the ferrying and, and all of that, you know. But and then my older son, I was his coach on a Sunday. But we were never going to stop. So I stopped doing non-league football when Andros joined Yeovil at 17. And I had to find out where, where on earth that was in the country, by the way, at the time. <laughs> um, you must have got a fright when you saw how far Well, I was. did. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. And... You know, when someone, I, I used to say, oh, it's past those rocks and things and a little bit further on. Um, but yeah, that meant the end of me because I didn't want to miss a minute of his football as a professional footballer. And that has continued 
all the way through those loans that he's had, through the England experience, through, you know, the many clubs that, you know, after all the loans stopped, Tottenham's, the Newcastle's, you know, Everton's, Crystal Palace, we're, we're there. It's very rare that we're not there, you know. And yes, you know, it's not like being on a on the side of a Tottenham Academy game and he knows and whatever, but we share that love for everything that he does. And it's replicated in the fact that the boys used to watch our girls go dancing. Uh, yeah, we had to fill them with popcorn and chocolate and that to convince them to come, but they did. And the girls and now the grandchildren all love going to watch, you know, their uncle or their brother play football. It's just one of those things that has been ingrained in us all the way through. We're not a unique family. I think there's many families that would always do the same. But, you know, there's one time when there's literally about 10 or 12 of us because his kids now, he's got children now. And like I said, the, the, the cousins and all of that, everyone wants to watch him play and continues to enjoy the time that he has left in the game as a player. Troy, thanks for coming on, mate. Um, I don't know if you had a choice. That's I don't know if you, you probably weren't pleasure. allowed to say no. <laughs> but um, honestly, like you are a good man, and uh, I'm. It took us too long to get you on just to talk about football. Yeah, and I'm pleased we do because you are a, a huge part. Don't mean yeah. I mean it, also <laughs> you said you spoke on a, an, a, another podcast exactly the same. There's no there's no podcast exactly the same. Well, I do know as, that you know if this that one. big money transfer to that other pod is going to happen. Oh hello, <laughs> oh, here we go, here we go. <laughs> All right, Troy. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Thoroughly enjoyable. Would of course Thank speak you. to you on the pods uh, uh, in the near future. Cheers, Troy. Cheers, Max. Cheers, Barry. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was the Guardian Football Weekly. This is The Guardian.